John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 98.DE2510, certificate number 39409, The Barefoot Bandit. So you, being an American must share with me a kind of romanticized picture of a cat burglar. Oh my gosh. It comes from, mine comes from the 60s. Cary Grant and David Niven on rooftops filling little valises with diamonds. To Catch a Thief and the Pink Panther. Exactly. These are films that really make it seem so sophisticated to sneak into people's houses and steal their jewels. Also created the odd idea that it was all 70-year-old British men doing this. Because <laughs> who else would be lively up on a rooftop? Obviously the most agile creature in nature, the 60 or 70-year-old British man. That's right. Well, and it's, uh, there's an element of truth to it because... Wait, the, really? Yeah, the most successful of all the cat burglars ingratiated themselves into high society in certain ways because it enabled them to, they they were the kind of anonymous looking handsome people that were able to sort of swan around a country club and appear like they belonged. And then when everybody sat down to dinner, they would go scale the outside of the, <laughs> the wall. Because they didn't and, have a place setting. Yeah, right. That Because they weren't actually, I mean, they, they it was part of the slyness of the, the anonymity. So there, there are cat Once burglars. Once again, blandly good-looking white men just getting away with so much. I'll tell you what, it's actually a profession for some people to be bland-looking. Um, there are, within the 20th century, several examples of this kind of David Niven character. A man named Bill Mason in the 60s, he, he wrote an autobiography because the at a certain point, you know, there's no statute of limitations on murder. Um, we know that if you murder somebody, even 50 years later, you can be caught and convicted of the crime. But stealing the Countess's emerald brooch? For for burglary, there is a statute of limitations. If they don't catch you within a certain period, um, you're no longer apprehendable. You know, you're not you're not culpable for that crime past 10 or I 15 mean, years. At the judgment bar of God, for damn sure you are. For sure. But in the eyes of the law. In the eyes of the law, there's, a, I guess, a certain sense that... 10, 15 years out. Um, you write a book. <laughs> yeah, you write a book where you brag about your crimes. But Bill Mason famously made a career out of robbing rich people. And rich people of the 70s would, I mean, his list of victims reads like Dean Martin's celebrity <laughs> roast guest list. He, uh, he famously robbed Bob Hope and Phyllis Diller and uh, Johnny Weissmuller, the famous Olympian. Wow. Yeah. In fact, Rob, so this guy was just hanging out at golf courses, right? Well, so he, uh, I mean, he began his career in, in Ohio, but he wisely moved to Florida. And so all these people had vacation homes in Florida and he would kind of in and out of the country club and, and figure out what people's patterns were and then sneak in and steal their jewels. And in the case of Johnny Weissmuller, he actually stole his Olympic gold medal. <laughs> but then later on felt so guilty about it. Not guilty about stealing his fortune 
or his precious metals, but felt guilty about stealing the gold medal and mailed it back to him anonymously. Because there's this Robin Hood-like idea that, um, you know, Bob Hope is going to be fine right. no matter what I steal, um, but I don't want to hurt them personally. Right, and there, there is, the, I think part of what makes it romantic is the sense that it's rich from the poor. You're, yes. you're a Robin Hood and you, but I'm, also... I'm punching up, basically. Right, but also that insurance often covers mm. the, the loss. So... Um, Bill Mason said, you know, I don't feel bad for them because they probably lied to the insurance company and made a profit. Sure. I'm sure the 70s was a boom time of celebrities pretending their own jewels were missing too, you know, Coco Chanel or whoever, pretending that her necklace has vanished. Yeah. Oops a daisy. Like I'm a little bit low on funds. I'm going to, I'm going to claim that my necklace was stolen. It's like the chambermaid took another necklace. What are the odds? And the, the thing that cat burglars, I think, and burglars in general don't realize is that to be burgled is, it really feels like an invasion. Uh, it creates a lot of just internal anxiety and fear in the victims. Even if it's Johnny Tarzan Weissmuller? I think so. He uh, no longer pounds his chest with the same <laughs> bro, easy bravado well, as have, before? Have you ever been robbed? Uh, I have had a backpack stolen from a waiting room, mm -hmm. which is less invasive. Um, but I've, still, I've had, my wife had some cash lifted from a locker at the gym. It's a sinking feeling, but uh, you've actually had a, a home invasion, right? Yeah. A home invasion while I was here Ooh. and fast asleep upstairs. Uh, someone came in through a window. Did he have, was it a British man with one of those things that cuts a perfect circle in your window? <laughs> Unfortunately, no, it was someone standing on a box that I'd left out in the yard. Meth ruined cat burglars. And it was, a, it was someone who's addicted to meth. And, How do you know? uh, well, because months later, so I felt really violated and, you know, I'm kind of an eclectic collector of things. You've got cool stuff. And this person spent enough time in my house that they were able to dismantle my stereo system. Uh, they found some precious metals that I had uh, lying around. Now, stupidly, I had a hundred ounce bar of silver that I used as a doorstop. <laughs> and figured that no one would ever think that I was using a 100-ounce bar of silver as a doorstop. He recognized it as a 100-ounce bar of silver. Imagine how palatial John's house is that when he's got uh, 100 ounces of silver, he just uses that as a doorstop. I actually live in a, in a the, hobble. The door uh, is covered with diamonds. I live in a hovel, but, uh, but I'm a nut, so I keep my <laughs> money in precious metals. Um, and he stole my laptop and all these things. Oh, no. Um, including my wallet which I had because I... That's I, just weeks of inconvenience. Yeah, it really was. And I was leaving on an international trip the next day. So I had to spend the entire day after the burglary getting a new passport and a... Oh, because he stole my passport. He stole your passport? Yeah. I was going to have lunch with you this day. I don't know if you remember this. You and I were going to have lunch. Oh, I didn't know this. And you, you called me and were like, I have to spend today calling credit card companies. This is the worst. Oh, it was an awful feeling. In particular, the feeling that I was upstairs asleep. And I heard him downstairs. But at the time, I had a problem with a possum that I thought was maybe living in my attic. And so I heard this rustling... And I rolled over and was like, ignore that stupid possum. You're going to have to deal with that when you get back from your international trip. This is like the old story of the boy who cried possum. <laughs> it really was. You, you didn't actually believe the tweaker when he was not a possum. So nine months went by where I was, you know, and I thought maybe some one of my sketchy neighbors had done it or some kid that was walking through the neighborhood. Uh, nine months later, I got a phone call from the police department of a neighboring town, Renton, Washington. And they said, hey, we were going through our evidence room, throwing out evidence from old crimes, and we found your wallet? And I was like, are you kidding me? Why didn't you report it when you... So I ran down there, and it turned out that they had found the thief the next day, sitting in his car, smoking crack with the engine running. And the police say, apparently, if you drive through a parking lot and you see a car just sitting there with the engine running... Generally, something is up. Oh, really? Yeah. So they went That's over how and crimes looked, get solved. And this guy was just like, and they could see his pipe. What if it's just me listening to the end of This American Life, you know? Like, uh, nope. I'm going to get pulled over. Sorry, right? they're going to look in at least. And it turned out that it was a stolen car. Hmm. So they busted him for car theft and did not think that because the car was full of laptops and bars of silver, that that stuff might be stolen too. So they just put it in the evidence room as something they got out of the trunk of a car. This doesn't speak highly of the Renton Police Department. I hope they're not listening. Well, and also it doesn't speak highly of the coordination between the Renton and Seattle Police because I was 
furiously submitting all these crime reports to descriptions of the silver. The silver's name is Gary. And I went and found all the serial numbers of all the stereo equipment and so forth. And the Seattle police and Renton police did not compare notes. So did you get most or all of it back? Got it all back except with the exception of the laptop. And I think he was smoking the crack that he got from from your house. Fence, yeah. Well, he stole my crack too, which infuriated me. I was using it for a doorstop. Like, Come on, I'm going on an international trip. <laughs> I'm going to need that. I'm gonna, now I'm going to have to get more crack. Uh, and I, what, what I think is hilarious is that he had a hundred ounces of silver, which is actual money. Like it's money. It's, you don't have to fence it. It's worth actual cash. You could go to Denny's yeah. and buy several Grand Slam breakfasts and just hand them a, a silver ingot. Just a big ingot. But instead, Which he, I do. he fenced his, you know, I bought a guitar not very, a few years ago by taking a big ingot into the thing and saying like, trade you the silver ingot for that guitar. And the guy was like, yeah. Wait, really? Yeah. See, this and, is what happens when you grow up in Alaska. You think it's okay to just take your nuggets into town. <laughs> That's was, not, we don't do that here, John. It was great. And also it ended up being a great deal because the price of silver fell. <laughs> Uh, as the price of the guitar went up. And so it turned out later on that I'd made a pretty good bargain. You know, you still, though this is a medium of exchange. You can use precious metals. Uh, but instead he fenced this laptop, which was probably a $1,200 laptop that he probably got like a bag of crack for. Did you lose data? Yeah, but you know, inshallah. You're so much, I don't think inshallah means what you think it does, does it? Uh, well, it just means, you know, as God wanted me to lose that data, it means I guess. as God wills, <laughs> you seem like you're much more ready for the apocalypse than I am with all your silver ingots. I did go through a period where, well, I mean, I keep a small bag packed. You're going to have to, if it's time to leave, you're going to want to, you got to, you got to go bag as we say in, in the biz. You're not going to want to be rummaging through your medicine cabinet looking for band-aids. Like a possum. Yeah. You're going to, you're going to want to grab a bag and get going. But it, there is a tremendous feeling of violation, and cat burglars often do not have quite that empathy for their victims that they realize, like, that they're leaving a lasting trauma. Um, there's a famous... They're, they're, uh, they're just selfish, right? Well, there... Lack of compassion. There's a bel- belief, I guess, that the rich are, and I think a lot of us hold this belief, even though we're not cat burglars. Yeah, the rich are insulated from... Yeah, that they have it coming and that... Um, Why would he, Bob Hope have a bad day? He's, yeah. got, he's got a million more at home. Right, and, and a lot of times... And that's not true. Have, hath not a rich man eyes and ears and silver ingots? Yeah, Bob Hope's going to have a bad day. If you prick us, do we not day. bleed? Think about Johnny Carson. It was all bad days for him, and it doesn't seem like it. He seems very happy, but he was, a, by all accounts, a miserable guy. I think, I think it's true. I, you know, and maybe it's not to their credit that some... They're having such an easy life, but some little thing can really give them a black day. But that's just how the human brain is. You know, you create your own kind of personal misery quotient. If things are going well, you know, you seize upon the one thing that's not. Money does not buy happiness. Is that true? Whoa. Not even if you have an ingot? Boom. No, my ingots do not buy happiness. They buy guitars. But in a lot of cases, these people were living in high-rise apartments and did not expect to be burgled. They, they probably felt like they were burglar proof. They're above the rabble. They and were. So it, it's probably increases the sense of violation when the cat appears at your balcony. Yeah. And, and Bill Mason, uh, was very, he had very strong hands, big hands that he worked out. He worked out the, you're the, getting kind his, of a dreamy look here, his hand strength and was able to easily scale. He was a wiry guy, easily scale two or three stories up and, and break into an unlocked balcony and take this stuff. If I had a black leotard and a silvery handlebar mustache, maybe I could do that too. I, maybe I've just never tried. I don't know. Do you, how, how strong are your hands? You seem like you have the hands of a writer. I went, <laughs> wow. <laughs> I don't have great like upper body strength. Yeah. Like I can never do the president's physical fitness test. You like, if you can't do 10 pull-ups, you're, you're pretty much turning it over to the Soviets. Yeah. You don't get that presidential medal. But I, <laughs> but I do have like, uh, I went to an archery thing once with a friend and he couldn't pull his arrows out of the thing. And I would just be like, zick, zick, zick. Oh. And so that's when I started to think maybe I have some amazing pickle jar grip. Yeah. So I, you're saying I could be a cat burglar. I mean, it's not contraindicated to being a cat burglar that you'd be able to pull arrows out of a target. seems like something that Cary Grant could have done too. Um, there was another famous uh, burglar from the 80s and 90s named Blaine uh, Nardal, 
who only These guys should have cooler names. Well, they do. You know, a lot of burglars are like serial killers. Their their famous name also includes their middle name. That's not their fault, right? That's just a police report it's included just, their middle name. Yeah, it's just nobody the way was it's like done. nobody called John Wayne Gacy John Wayne, right? Hey, John I, Wayne. I think Pick, maybe. Me a picture. I mean, who knows what John Wayne Gacy's friends were like? That's not <laughs> recorded in the historic record. If any. Um, but uh, but I, I leave the middle names out because I feel like, why dignify this whole thing? But uh, Blaine was a similar sort of rob the rich sort of cat burglar, but he preferred, wait for it, sterling silver. Huh. And actually carried around a silver testing kit. Like people's flatware? Uh, yeah, and there, uh, he, he once stole 120 pairs of solid silver or sterling silver salt shakers from no less than Ivana Trump. <laughs> Why does Ivana Trump have that many? Well, she's a collector too, just like I am, and, li- and likes solid silver. Her doors have to open and stay open the way yours do. She needs silver door stops. And uh, th- her silver uh, salt shaker collection was worth $50,000. That's kind of the cliche, like kind of the Evelyn Waugh era thing of the ne'er-do-well guest who leaves with your grandmother's silver up his sleeves, yeah. you know, and the butler has to kind of dourly... You stop him and shake his jacket. Shakes his jacket and all the forks <laughs> fall out. Blaine was five foot three and made a habit of cutting, uh, sort of like the Pink Panther, cutting a, a hole in the glass and then being, he was able to slide through these little like single window panes in a divided light uh, back door and get inside, steal all your stuff and then back out the little hole in the window and never set off the burglar alarm and uh, you never knew he was there. Um, he robbed Bruce Springsteen. Well, that just guy. doesn't seem like a good American if, you're robbing, you what. if you're robbing the boss. Well, and you take his gold medal and... and uh, Does Bruce Springsteen have a gold medal? I'm sure he has a presidential medal of freedom. He must have a medal from a uh, New Jersey governor and <laughs> brief presidential candidate. Uh, Chris Christie. Chris Christie. The future doesn't know about Chris Christie, but he was a huge hero in our day. Chris U- Christie. Universally beloved. There was a time when Chris Christie seemed like the savior of the Republican Party because He's, he spoke truth to power. He stood astride New Jersey like a colossus. He spoke truth to uh, poor people. Uh, stood right in their faces and mocked Finally. them. <laughs> I'm so glad. Four people have had it too good for too long. Yeah, but he was no match for the for our current president. He closed one bridge and it all collapsed around him. Um, there are sort of your more traditional like jewelry store thieves. One of the most famous and long tenured jewelry store thieves was named Doris Payne. She was an African-American woman who would go in and pull the sort of bait and switch. She'd go into a... I like, I like the representation here. This is good. Oh, thank you. She would, uh, well, you know... Uh, you you got to think about this. You got, you got to want your podcast to look like America. There are thieves across all, all uh, walks of life. She would pose as a, as a wealthy woman, go into jewelry stores, ask to see this ring and that ring and this ring and that ring, and they would bring all these jewels mm-hmm. out. And then sleight of hand, they would just sort of forget... How many she had. How many rings there were, and she would secrete one in her sleeve, and off she went. If she could secrete rings, why was she or, stealing them? I'm sorry, them? she would secret them. Oh, okay, I see. <laughs> Not secrete them. You know, I have a, a, a famous uh, problem with words. Oh, I thought you were going to say with secretions. I also, well, no, I don't secrete. Thank goodness. Yeah, although, you know, there are two kinds of earwax. Did you know this? What? No. Yeah. There's... Earwax, which is, I guess you would describe it as Asian earwax in, in Japan, oh. that is sort of a flaky, crusty earwax. I have heard this. And, they, there's a good gene for earwax, and, yeah. and we don't have it. And then there's European earwax, earwax which is a sort of liquid uh, and- goop. And uh, so, but I'm, unfortunately, I'm of European descent and have the wrong kind of earwax. But you said you don't have secretions. Well, uh, some musicians uh, do. Bruce Springsteen, for example, that's a guy who secretes. He He'll get up secrete. there, he will sweat and sweat for a whole three-hour set. Let's be honest, I do that too. Oh, okay. Um, a friend of mine gave me as a gift some Japanese... Earwax. Ear, not earwax, but earwax scrapers, <laughs> which are long uh, long poles that have little hands on the end, and you're supposed to scrape Wait, your earwax it out. it literally looks like a little white glove, like a Dr. Seuss gimmick? I think there are a lot of different kinds. They're made out of bamboo, and, and they have little hooks on them, and I use them. That seems dangerous. You're, it's super did you dangerous. Know you're, we should tell the future, you're not supposed to use Q-tips. If, Never, you, ha- if you have yeah. oral orifices of any kind, don't poke a thing in there to clean it out. Never poke any 
thing into your aural orifice bigger than a tentacle or smaller <laughs> than a tentacle. That's what your grandmother's probably said. Because at least, you know, evolution for our species is made that, so that it can flush itself out. It flushes itself out, right. Exactly. You don't need... Uh, anyway, Doris had a very long career. She started her first criminal uh, escapade, started in the 1950s. She famously stole a 10-carat diamond ring um, from, huge. Uh, from a, a jewelry store in Monte Carlo. She, the, wow. she was an international Speaking jewelry Speaking of Cary Grant stuff. Uh, but she continued to steal into her 80s. Good for her. She's now, she's still alive. She's 87 years old. And uh, very recently, as recently as 2015, was um, caught stealing jewels. Even when she had a low jack on her ankle, she, and I think most recently, she stole a, a big ring from a jewelry store. They, they kind of suspect it's her, but they couldn't prove it. So she's out still getting away with crimes. That's delightful. I love yeah. this story. Yeah, Doris Payne. She's... I She's a real role model. She really is. I've never said yes, queen, but I think I might yeah. be tempted to say it about her. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get Get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. But there's another style of cat burglar, uh, which is the sort of wild man cat burglar. Somebody on a spree. Uh, well, someone on a spree and also someone who is living off the grid. They're burglaring in order to not be a part of society. It's a survival thing. Yeah, and they often are burglaring uh, vacation cabins. Yeah, I was just going to say. It's a, a whole universe of there all these cabins that are owned by people that can afford to have a vacation cabin. And they're routinely not there. Or they're not there during the off-season. And the cabins typically have food and alcohol and weapons and also provide a comfortable place to sleep out of the weather. And so it's a, a style of burglar. People kind of camping on public land or national forest somewhere and just burgling right. cabins to survive. Because it's difficult in, certainly in northern latitudes, to survive year-round Completely subsistence. Mm -hmm. uh, it's everyone's fantasy, I think, to not everyone, it but is it's not a, everyone's fantasy. It's a lot of people's fantasy that they would just disappear into the forest and live like a wild person. I love that you think that's a universal fantasy. <laughs> but like, if you were on a dating show, John, what do you want in a woman? Oh, that she wants to just disappear off the grid and live in a forest. Ah, uh, as do we all. That daydream we all constantly have living in the forest. Unfortunately, it's a kind of fantasy that often leads to real trouble. Uh, the movie Into the Wild, the story of Christopher McCandless, who was traveling the United States uh, contemporaneously with, with me. He and I actually crossed paths, in although a, never in met. In a boxcar? I was hitchhiking and, and hopping freights at the same time that he was hitchhiking around the country. And I've looked at the timeline, and uh, he was sort of passing from the southwest up to Alaska right about the time that I was headed from California over to Colorado. You guys could have shared a can of beans? If only. I, believe me, I've thought about it many times. What if we really had like bumped into each other? You could have saved him. I felt very lonely during that period of my life, and he clearly did too, if we'd found a like-minded soul. Well, my, my issue is I only hear about these people when there's a, uh, an incident and a magazine profile. But you, so there's a whole culture of people kind of scraping by this way. There is, and um, and in my experience, there's an awful lot of romance 
about this idea of not being a citizen. I mean, there are so many complications about citizenship because once you are pursuing citizenship, and most people don't think about it, it's just it's inevitable. De- it's their default state. You inherited a tax liability and all this. Right. But if you are in it at all, you have to be in it all the way, right? You can't live within contemporary society and also not have insurance, for instance, on your car. Mm -hmm. And if you object to one aspect of civilization, you're going to end up on the wrong side of the law because if you don't have insurance, you're going to get a ticket. And if you don't pay the ticket, you're going to get a court date. And if you don't go to court, then you're going to end up with a bench warrant and if you get caught with a bench warrant, then you're going to get arrested. You know, it's a it's a very slippery slope if you don't maintain you every gotta be, aspect. You got to be all in. That's right. And so there are lots and lots of people that object to one or another, or or have a certain or, or, or don't feel capable. Don't feel you capable. Know? Yeah, that they get bounced out of society, and then they're within the hobo culture. That's a point of pride. Do you feel the romance of it is unearned? You sound like somebody who's had a little bit of experience. Like, No, it's not. I just, uh, what, what ends up happening is it's very difficult to live completely outside of society. Well, to live outside the law, you must be honest, as Bob Dylan said. Oh, and well, it, that's it, Dylan's approach. And it's, <laughs> But it sounds like that is not true of all who live outside the law. Like many of them survive on dishonesty. It's a kind of, it's a, Kind of, I think it's also part of the legend that there is a hobo law. A code. Um, and so you do fulfill the code, but no, they're all very dishonest. I mean, there's, you don't end up riding the rails because you were a high school valedictorian and thought, oh, this is better than getting a job. I mean, most of the time you end up riding the rails because you are excluded from society for some breach of society's code. And so there are certain codes, but those codes are not ironclad and they don't apply in all situations. Hobos will rob one another. In other words. Uh, Even when they're leaving each other, those cute little symbols. (laughs) Yes. Nice, (laughs) nice, nice lady with pie. Nice lady with pie. Let me ask you this. Uh, From all these anecdotes you've told about um, burglars, legendary burglars, it seems like it's pretty easy to make a living stealing great stuff. And it's almost just by convention. (laughs) That more, like we're just we're just lucky that more people haven't thought of it. Well, e- or we'd all constantly be living in fear. It isn't easy because in in most cases you're risking arrest at all times, and everyone I've mentioned has been arrested multiple I see. times. These people do get caught. It's just burglary is not like murder. You don't get a forty year sentence. So in most cases they get caught. They spend a couple of years in jail, three or four years in jail, and then they're out and immediately began burglarizing. There's a word for people like them: recidivism. Repeat offense. Recidivists, that's right. They do not learn their lesson. Uh, but the, particularly the wild man burglar, um, you have to have wilderness skills. You have to be able to subsist on very little. There's a famous uh, Norwegian wild man burglar who was known as the Wanderer, who for decades or for all of the 80s and 90s was living in the wild. Um, Which is and, pretty hard in Norway. Uh, well, I mean, if you head north in Norway, there's an awful lot of empty space. Well, there's plenty of well. I'm just saying it's a hard place to survive a winter. Super duper cold. That's right. And so he would break into cabins and live there, eat all their food, drink all their alcohol because he was an alcoholic. And uh, It's actually legal in Norway to take some rich person's food. Well, it's legal certainly to take someone's alcohol. <laughs> um, and he would live there, but he was, you know, he was a chronic alcoholic and often would just wreck these cabins. And they'd come home and he'd still be there? Uh, no, he always sort of managed to, or not always escaped. I mean, he was busted again and again, but he claims, or I, I think was on record having burglarized over 650 cabins. And they, the owners would come and find that there was vomit and uh, the, like... The perfect crime. Yeah, like... Secretions. All the poop all over the place because he was just bleh. You can get DNA samples from secretions. Uh, and he continued on his spate. He was he was brutally beaten in prison at one point and went through a period where he suffered brain damage. But after being released from his from a psychiatric facility, continued to burgle right up until the end. And he died within the last couple of weeks. Oh, he as is, we as we record this, as we record this, 2018, he recently passed away. And again, was despite his intrusions into all these people's lives um, was somewhat celebrated in death 
as a kind of a long lost bandit or, a, you know, a, an archetype from an earlier time. Well, I kind of wonder about that, you know, like in America, we, uh, maybe Bonnie and Clyde were the first time we really just loved the idea of kind of watching a crime spree and who knows what they're going to do next. Oh no. Uh, Billy the kid. Sure. That's you know, true. Like the train the robbers of true. the wild west were just as romantic, but there was that period during the twenties and thirties when, you know, pretty boy Floyd and all these characters were out, uh, Robin and, Banks. And for down on their luck Americans, the Robin Hood angle probably really got played up. And some of these, some of these people knew, knew that and became media personas and gave the money away. And I almost think the fact that there is this media myth now, like it will create, you know, somebody who starts doing this isn't just thinking, well, this is all I can do to get by. Somebody might be thinking, I bet I could get them to call me the Barefoot Bandit. Yeah, you right. Because they know the stories. Pretty exciting. You pull your fedora down over your eyes and you walk in with a Tommy gun and say, hand over the loot. That's <laughs> 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 pretty good. Hand over the loot. Um, I'm saying the media creates this. Oh, well, the media creates the angle where the common man is rooting for the burglar. And the burglar imagines that they're an, an icon of the common man with a nickname and a persona. This does happen, but in many cases, the wild man burglars really are living off the grid. There's a character by the name of Christopher Knight who, who just drove his car up into the woods of Maine, abandoned it, and walked out into the woods and lived in the wilderness alone for 27 years. Um, again, breaking into cabins, but he had a little campsite. He found a grove where there were some protective rocks and lived out there just sort of in a nest uh, for, t for 27 years. It's a long time to be in a nest. Yeah, this was, you know, sort of in the 80s, right around, right around the Chernobyl times. And he just decided to pitch it all in and eventually was uh, discovered by a lost hiker, you know? And, like his body was discovered? No, or, no. Oh, I okay. mean, he, um, he eventually came back into the world. Th this is a kind of hermit idea too. Like, I mean, they're not trying to socialize. Uh, and yeah, so this used to have a religious significance, right? You were, you were a holy man. If you went off to consider higher things, you, you know, uh, you'd be Saint Jerome or whoever. Right. And I think those holy men were living e either in a time or in a culture where there was a sense within the culture that you would put a little food in their bowl. Um, we don't really have that as much now. The idea that some holy wanderer in tatters might be an enlightened soul. Yeah. Not in the West, certainly. And I think when you're burglarizing cabins, you don't quite have holy man status. But most recently, and here in our own Pacific Northwest, there is an example of the wild burglar that sort of defied the model. In some ways, just in the degree of hubris. Sure, the daring of it. The d literal daring do of a young man by the name of Colton Harris Moore. Three names. I will pronounce the second name because it's a hyphenated name. Colton Harris, which seems very distinctively... Uh, a modern name. He was born in 1991, Colton Harris Moore, in our own region, in Mount Vernon, Washington, which is a kind of small agricultural town, or all, traditionally was. About an hour north of Seattle. About an hour north. And then was raised on Kameno Island, which is an island of vacation homes for all intents and purposes, half of which is a sort of gated community of mid-century modern houses that old people might uh, vacation upon, and half of it is just a rural Washington sort of hick community. I think it's easy in America, for people that live in cities in particular, to think of there being a kind of population of country people that live in small, isolated regions. But in fact, if you leave American cities and go in any direction for not very far... right you'll find that most of America is rural and... Um, the Trump signs start like 20 minutes away, no matter where you are. 20 minutes Unless away. it's like Times Square. And so Colton Harris Moore, although living within an hour of Seattle, was living in a, in a very um, sort of countrified, transitional environment. 
and he was he had a very troubled childhood. His mother was a drinker. His uh, father was gone. His stepfather was abusive. But even given those conditions, was uh, surprisingly detached and was already living on the wild outside by age of seven. Seven. Seven years old. How does that even work? I mean, you've been a father. You've had a seven-year-old I two times. I can't get my seven-year-old to carry their plate from the table to the sink. Uh, the idea that you could be figuring out how to cook possums on a skewer yeah. is bizarre to me. I also have a child that age, and um, she can barely survive in a home when people are feeding her. Exactly. Let alone, like, wander into the woods and live. But... Um, so clearly a very intelligent and resourceful young man. That's right. And one who had plenty of reason to escape his home life. Mm-hmm. Uh, his first yeah, conviction Right. His first conviction for burglary ha- happened at the age of 12 uh, for home invasion and continued apace. And when you're a, when you're a child that young, and you're convicted of a thing like that, there's a presumption that there's, it's a little bit of childish folly. I mean, who among us hasn't at one point or another broken into someone's home? Mm. <laughs> Don't think that's as universal either. Um, but, uh, and so he was only kept in those instances for three to five days uh, in a juvenile detention facility and then released. And so he did it multiple times and eventually just disappeared into the wild as a teenager and began a kind of legendary crime spree where he would break into houses and steal a bicycle and ride it around. I mean, he's still a kid. Uh, He would get on their computer and surf the internet. He would eat the food and stay overnight. There's a case of him showing up and just using somebody's computer and credit card to order bear mace and night vision goggles. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's a child and he wanted bear mace, although bears aren't as big a problem on Kamano Island as you might think. Uh, but I think he thought of it as a self-defense. But then he wanted these $6,000 night vision goggles to commit more crimes. He really, um, he really saw himself as a kind of noble outsider. Yeah, he's a character. Uh, he was known as the Barefoot Bandit because they uh, they found tracks at some of these crime scenes that were just his bare feet. At one point, he traced his feet. He traced a path of his feet. And he left notes signed the Barefoot Bandit like a like a high schooler who wants a new nickname to catch on. I, I wonder if it originated with news reports and then he liked it or not. Oh, absolutely it did. And he followed his own exploits because he was a contemporary person. He could surf the internet. He would look himself up. Um, but he managed to evade authorities for several years. And he was very, the the frustration of his victims was much more apparent than cat burglars in the past. I mean, Bob Hope did not go on TV and complain, but his victims often were just people with a, with a vacation house or a cabin. Yeah, any news report he sees about himself, the the centerpiece of it is going to be a, a homeowner blubbering about how I hope they get this guy. Yeah, and, and people did feel invaded. People People's houses were broken into multiple times. Um, but as the, the noose tightened, as the uh, cops got closer and closer to, to capturing him, he expanded his territory and started living out in the wilds in Idaho. And uh, he moved around. He would steal cars. But then... Do we, do we know why he was barefoot, by the way? Is there some... Is he sneaking up on people Indian style? So, or, I mean... It, or is it all fake? Yeah, the barefoot bandit thing, um, that coinage, comported with a kind of idea of a year 2000s sort of hippie child, um, descendant of a kind of Northwest... Uh, hippie, but in fact, he wore shoes most of the time. Oh, uh, he only was barefoot a couple of times. And I mean, if you go to any indie rock show now, the chance that <laughs> right. the violin player is also barefoot, it's pretty high. So it, it's, you it think is the violin, a thing. The violin player is barefoot and pretty high. The, the banjo player, definitely barefoot and high. <laughs> violin player needs to be in their right frame of mind to play that instrument. It certainly accords with this kind of Dick Tracy and Batman spawned idea that, you know, villains need a, a gimmick, you mm-hmm. know, a fun thing. And if he's not leaving riddles on business cards, you know, chalk outlines of bare feet 
and then the word Sia, the, <laughs> his, his hilarious trademark, Sia, he pulled that'll in, stand in. He pulled in one time to a humane society and left a check of $100 under the door with a note that said, I had some extra money, use this to help the animals, signed to the Barefoot Bandit. See, that, that's so media engineered. That's yeah. a guy who knows about the Robin Hood Zorro thing and is like, you know what I'd like them to say about me next time? Yeah, I'd like to get, I, you know, I haven't been in the newspapers in a week. He didn't have spare money. He earmarked that. And then he's like, what do people love? What do they Animal love? hospitals. I love animals. Uh, but he was often, Not bears. He didn't love bears. He maced them. Well, I think that was probably for- When they got a little handsy. Yeah, right. He was living outside a lot of the time and was, you know, able to forage. He had outdoor skills, wilderness skills. Uh, it's just much better to break into a cabin and eat macaroni and cheese and sleep in a bed. And I, I say that from firsthand experience. It's just much better to sleep inside than out, um, no matter how wild you think you are. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com slash start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. But his great innovation, the thing that sets him apart from all wild men, I think, uh, all burglars even, was that he went online and taught himself how to fly. He watched some instructional videos. He'd already been playing uh, flight simulator video games. He got a manual, like a flying manual, and studied these things enough that he felt capable of flying an airplane. Wow. Um, now, you, you fly. Yeah, you also know that I, as a teenager, learned to fly. And but, is that plausible, do you think, that somebody could... It absolutely is. You know, taking an airplane off the ground is not that complicated. You, uh, you do a little pre-flight check. You make sure everything works, which is an enumerated list that you can find anywhere. Mm. And then you give it some gas and take your foot off the brake and the plane will just roll along. You, when the plane's on the ground, you steer it with your feet. There are foot pedals and you left and right you can turn and, and line yourself up down a runway and then you just give it the gas. You can put the flaps down a little bit, but all of this would have been in his instructional videos. It flaps down to a little bit to give you extra lift, give the wings extra lift. I would still be nervous, I think, if I'd, if I'd never done this in real life. I guess the thing about video games is they're very immersive and the simulation aspect really does make him feel like, oh yeah, I can do this. Well, and as a teenager, you have a, your decision-making process is somewhat colored by the fact your brain isn't developed. So although speaking as a teenage pilot, it is nerve wracking because there's a lot of power in a, in an airplane engine. Mm -hmm. And when you push that, that throttle forward and the plane sort of leaps into action, you feel the power. And crosswinds and other things affect the plane even when it's on the ground. But then you just pull back on the stick and at a certain airspeed or a certain ground speed, the plane just lifts it off. It wants to be in the air. It does. And, um, and then you're flying. And once you're flying, you can sort of steer your plane anywhere you want to go. Yeah, it's not like learning to drive where you're sort of at the mercy of wh where the lanes go. Yeah, there are you rules can yourself. of the air, but it's... Um, not, if you're, not if you just stole somebody's Cessna. Right, there aren't like air cops that'll get behind you and turn their <laughs> turn their rollers on. You you motor away, and in the Northwest, and I think all the way across the country, there are a lot of what we call uncontrolled airports, which mean there there isn't a control tower. There's not someone there monitoring traffic because there's just not a ton of traffic. 
And so you can go out and steal one of these airplanes. And, and if you're a pilot, you don't have to schedule it. You can just come and take off yourself with nobody in the tower. That's right. And there's a, there is a protocol. You get on the radio and you say, for instance, you know, Mount Vernon uncontrolled airport. You would say Mount Vernon traffic. This is Cessna 734 Bravo prepared for takeoff on, you know, runway 48 and, um, I don't, I don't think be I would, on the lookout. <laughs> I don't like the self-serve lanes at the grocery store. I don't think I want that. I want, you know. But, and, you know, you scan the skies, and if there aren't airplanes sort of <laughs> cycling around, because there is a, there's what's called, it's actually called the pattern, which is when you approach an airport, you get into the pattern, which certain... is you fly around and to the left, and um, and you set yourself up. So you fly neck to parallel to the runway and you're looking around at all times. And then you set yourself up for that big turn uh, that will bring you down and then parallel to the runway and land. So he was taking these airplanes, not from major airports, but from small plane airports. What's, what's involved, by the way? Is there any, do these, uh, does a Cessna have like a keyed ignition? It does. And he figured out how to hotwire hmm. uh, an airplane just as you would a car. Again, not a, not a complicated process. And airplanes typically, I mean, there are a lot of, uh, people might not think this, but the design of a private plane like a Cessna, these planes date back to the 50s. And many of those airplanes are still in the sky. So if you see a little Cessna bobbing along, it could easily have been made in 1965. And although you change the avionics, the sort of instruments within it, as new technology comes, um, the plane itself I mean, you could start it with two toothpicks. So Harris Moore, indeed, Colton Harris Moore had no problem doing this. He would, he would just find a plane and take off. And f could he land? So he routinely did it, but landing was a problem for him. <laughs> and as a, as a small plane pilot uh, and, a, and a teenage small plane pilot, boy, landing was a problem for me. It's so much harder to get an airplane down on the ground than it is to get one up in the air. You have to reduce your speed and be lined up properly and your altitude at that point really matters and winds are affecting you. I mean, not like being on the ground where you just follow the center line. Um, if you're in the air, you're, you're operating in three dimensions mm -hmm. and you have to think about every one of them. And so getting a plane down on the ground is incredibly nerve wracking. And Colton Harris Moore never quite figured it out. Never nailed it. So he would steal an airplane fly across the several states or good. fly around Washington. Good, good, doing good. And uh, then he decided it was time to get down. Uh, you know, airplanes have a certain range. And uh, he would bring it down and crash it. Uh, and Would he crash it at an airfield or would he just crash it wherever? He would crash it various places. Uh, you know, yeah, I mean, I don't think he ever meant to crash it into the trees, but he would... Uh, he didn't know. have charts, huh? He wasn't, he wasn't going to a particular place. So a lot of airplanes do have... You know, I mean, the pilots leave their charts inside the plane. I mean, you would need to be able to read a map, but one presumes he was able. And it didn't seem really like he had places that he was needed. Uh, <laughs> people weren't like, hey, Colton Harris, like, get over here. Come steal from my cabin. But he survived multiple plane crashes. And they're not plane crashes like a wing falls off and you plummet from the sky. Like, he's getting down to ground level and then just not succeeding in putting it down elegantly. That still seems like, you know, you're against long odds to walk away from that many crashes. It does. Uh, there aren't very many pilots who can claim to have crashed multiple planes. Now, this is something Bush pilots sort of famously, uh, some of the legendary Bush pilots would claim to have survived multiple crashes uh, within Alaska, there are a lot, there's sort of a, a competitiveness between famous bush pilots. Uh, one of the most famous bush pilots, maybe the f most famous. I can't name a single one, so <laughs> this will be, this, to me, this will be the most famous bush pilot. Well, up in Alaska, you know, bush pilots and dog mushers are a kind of celebrity that do it doesn't translate here. Was your school named for a bush pilot or a dog musher? Uh, for neither. It was named for a mythical Native American bird called the Thunderbird. Oh, that's and pretty that's good. not really a bird, a, a mythical Native American bird indigenous to Alaska. Isn't so, that the Southwest? Yeah. So there were some white people who were naming their high school. <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, the Thunderbird will uh, we'll honor our, our... The Inuits uh, will love this. Yeah, local and natives. the Inuits are just like, rolling their eyes. Not really. So uh, a man named Don Sheldon was an early pioneer of bush piloting. 
uh, and landing on Mount McKinley and various, uh, various other things, uh, other feats of daring do. And he bragged about crashing his airplane and surviving crashes, multiple crashes. Uh, but we had our own family bush pilot, uh, by a man by the name of Cliff Hudson. You guys employed a bush pilot? Well, my good friend Peter Nosek, his father was an attorney, and he and Cliff Hudson were close friends. So Cliff ended up being our bush pilot of choice. Don Sheldon was dead by this point. Um, did he die in a crash? I don't want to be morbid. No, Don Sheldon did not die uh, of a plane crash. He died of cancer, which which is you know, a less glorious end. He should have just plummeted into the... Into a glacier. You know, our most famous Alaska uh, United States Senator, Ted Stevens, died at the end of his career in a plane crash. They named an airport after him, and I'm against this. There should not be airports named for people who died in plane crashes. The thing is, he died, or they named the airport for him while he was still alive, which is even rarer. And then he died in a plane crash? then he died in a plane crash. Very disrespectful. This is really very Alaskan. But, uh, But Cliff Hudson, who flew with his little poodle on his lap. Uh, and often in, uh, Cess- or, I'm sorry, Piper Cubs, which are p- planes basically made out of paper. Mm-hmm. And he was a laconic kind of country pilot. Uh, and when people would talk to him about Don Sheldon, who he was very competitive with, cause they both flew out of Talkeetna and they would say like, Don Sheldon survived 25 plane crashes or whatever. Uh, Cliff Hudson, who had never crashed his plane would say, well, I don't really consider plane crashes a sign of a good pilot. <laughs> and it was like the ultimate like Bush pilot diss on, on Don Sheldon, who got all the, who got all the celebrity. Owned. But so Colton Harris Moore became a very notorious figure in uh, the, the Northwest through the late 2000s and even into the 2010s and 11s um, because this crime spree became a, a, a kind of, Focus of romance here in the Northwest. People were rooting for him. It's folklore. We have a tradition of that here. D.B. Cooper famously hijacked an airplane and escaped maybe to his death or maybe escaped to live out his life. Maybe one of us is D.B. Cooper. Hard, could, hard to say. It's not me. I'm too young. We're both too young. Uh, but so Colton, there are people making T-shirts of Colton Harris more. And in his final act... Yeah, these are escalating. Yeah, they're, they're, it's getting crazier and crazier. And even in the time, people were thinking, how long can this kid keep doing this? He's going to die. You can't be running from the cops and stealing airplanes and crashing, and them, crashing the them before something terrible happens. But on July 4th of 2010, in Bloomington, Indiana, which he had he'd gotten as far as Indiana by stealing airplanes and cars, in Bloomington, Indiana, he stole uh, a Cessna 400, which is a different kind of airplane. This is a, a low-wing airplane rather than a rather than a high-wing airplane. What does that mean? Well, What's the, the difference? I'm just uh, if you think of a, a typical Cessna, the wing is on the top of the sure. plane, and the plane hangs from it. It hangs from it, and your windows you don't really you can't look up through the wing. Your windows are are there, and you can see down and and quite a distance. Uh, a Cessna 400 is like a Beechcraft where the wing is below and you're, you're sitting up on top of it. But it doesn't fly any differently or longer or anything. Um, they tend to be sort of sportier planes than the, the high wing planes are more, are used primarily by bush pilots because they have better ground clearance and they're more, they're hardier. Low wing planes tend to be thought of as kind of executive planes mm-hmm. or suburban planes. Sky tourism. That's, that's maybe my uh, Alaska prejudice against them. But he stole a Cessna 400 and flew from Indiana to the Bahamas. Uh, he flew to Great Abaco Island in the Bahamas. For that, you would have to have charts. You, well, you, you wouldn't just take off into the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah, you would have had to do some research, but it's still an amazing flight. It's a flight uh, over a thousand miles across the Appalachian mountains and through the, the Southeast of the United States and out over the open ocean. Uh, and he managed to make it to the Bahamas where he predictably crashed. Um, a Cessna 400 only has a range of 1200 miles. So he was, you that know, was about it. He was cutting it close. He tried to, he didn't even try to land at an airport uh, there are fewer uncontrolled airports in the Bahamas. So he just picked a stretch of beach 
and just tried to land it on the beach and crashed and escaped. At this point, the, there was a massive manhunt for him. And everybody figured, well, we just found this airplane in the Bahamas. We're guessing it's him. And he went on a crime spree, breaking into vacation houses in the Bahamas that lasted a week or so with the Bahamanian police closing in. He was stealing boats and escaping from them. And then at a certain point, stole a boat, was reported in real time. The, uh, the police began a chase against him and shot out his motor. <laughs> this is a sort of exotic, this is the, the most... Um, he must have loved this. Now he's an international criminal. Oh, he was having the time of his life. I think then they had him surrounded and he, he had a gun and pointed it at, him, at his head and said, I'll kill myself. Very dramatic. But, he's, he's been diagnosed at this point with a bunch of stuff. Well, and depression, and, probably attention deficit, some kind of intermittent explosive disorder. Yeah, all of the sort of traditional. I mean, at this point in time in the 2000s, uh, the 90s and 2000s, almost every teenager was being uh, diagnosed with some mental disorder. This was the era of the plague of Ritalin. Ritalin, man. Right. So we were giving it to every hyperactive child. But definitely, Colton Harris Moore had some emotional damage. But boy, he really wrung every bit of drama out of it. Uh, he wasn't just sitting at home cutting himself or, or listening to the cure. He sucked the marrow out of life all the way to the Bahamas. So he was busted and then extradited. I, uh, his mother was supporting him this whole time, although obviously he had an estranged relationship with her. He was like, she was wiring him money. and Yeah, and she's a, a crazy uh, Northwest mom. She's Tanya Harding's mom, basically. Yeah, right, drunk she mom. The, she has the parrot. Uh, ashing her cigarette into her own soup. <laughs> but she was supporting him, and I think his plan was to escape to Cuba or some country where he couldn't be returned, couldn't be extradited. He when, didn't make it. You know, when he's interviewed about his spree, he often talks about how he just always had the sense he wasn't going to live long. Yeah. And that was why the whole full throttle thing. Super Bonnie and Clyde. And that's probably true of a lot of people from generations where the world seems troubled. You know, the 60s kids, you know, the first kids growing up with the... Sh you know, seeming certainty of nuclear annihilation and these you know, millennial kids have, for the first time, maybe having to face an America that is going to be worse than what their parents. Yeah. Built. But it's a, it's also a, a kind of suicidal ideation. Like uh, when I was a troubled teen, I was never inspired to do harm to myself, but I definitely imagined a Thelma and Louise ending to some exploit and figured I would drive a car off a cliff or something, you know, dramatic. Um, and so he was, you know, he, he thought he was living on a short fuse, but he ended up in jail and the police and his victims were very hostile to the idea of him being turned into a legendary figure. They must, they must have hated that idea. He did a lot of damage and stole a lot of stuff and made a lot of people angry. Um, and so he went to jail, was forbidden from profiting from his story. Yeah, he sold movie rights, but the prosecutors sensibly said to get this plea deal, you have to stipulate. As I understand it, there are these Son of Sam laws to keep killers from profiting from their life rights. Right. But it's only for murderers. Right. This is a, this is a situation where he, he did collect money, but then uh, his parole officer insisted that the money be given to his victims. I think it was a part of his plea deal. And I think one of the people responsible for that is Jenny Durkin, who's now our mayor in Seattle, and he is not a fan of. I think That's she, right. She was one of the people who came up with that clause. Well, she's one of those one of those liberal politicians that gets to be tough on crime, but also a progressive. <laughs> it's a it's best of both worlds. That's the liberal version of tough on crime is uh, spree burglars can't keep their life rights when, right. they, when they sell the rights to Fox for $900,000. But so Colton Harris Moore did his time and was recently released. He's still, I mean, he was born in 1991. He's still a young man and was given a job, wait for it, in his attorney's office as a low-level clerk. He comes off as smart in interviews. I wonder if his attorneys are like, this kid just needs to, it's like a gifted kid who needs an environment that's not, his Camino Island trailer. He's very smart and savvy. He, his dream is to become an aeronautical engineer. So he obviously fell in love with flying. And although now he's starting to blog and trying to be a charismatic 
figure who's weighing in on contemporary politics. Social media personality. I think that you know, that this ultimate ambition to be an aeronautical engineer uh, seems noble, I mean, and to advise, perhaps advise the FBI. And uh, ultimately, if Providence allows, uh, he'll one day learn to land. And that concludes The Barefoot Bandit. Entry 98.DE2510, certificate number 39409, in the omnibus. We cannot promise that Colton Harris Moore's social media accounts exist in your time, futurelings. Given what he seems to be posting, I I hope not. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how interested you are in... uh, how America needs a strong leader yeah. um, with a red baseball cap. Uh, or interested in a 25-year-old who never graduated from high school's opinion <laughs> on what we need in the Oval Office. Or his Kickstarter to cryonically freeze his mom. Did you see this? I didn't. He was trying to raise $230,000 to, to um, freeze his mom in a, in a vault in New Mexico or That's something. That's what we need is some future robot Moore mom. It's possible that uh, you know his mom, that she has been revived in your time, and perhaps she's listening. She may be the king of your world. <laughs> if she is, we apologize for any slurs against your son, ma'am. Uh, John and I have gone to great lengths to ensure that our social media profiles will exist into the distant millennia to come. You can find us at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick at Twitter and in John's case, Instagram. Uh, we are at Omnibus Project on any social media platform you can think of, even the failed ones, like <laughs> Google Hangouts. Uh, we're probably there. Yeah, there is a fan group uh, on Facebook as well. You can look up the Futurelings on Facebook and see what your fellow Omnibus uh, readers are thinking. There is also an email address. That's what I forgot. There please, please contact us. Tell us all your complaints about our work um, by emailing us at omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, a time when bandits were still considered criminals, uh, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. Or if uh, Colton Harris Moore uh, is one of the horsemen of our own apocalypse. We hope and pray that that catastrophe may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the omnibus. Omnibus.